0: Welcome to the Future of the Administrative State, where we explore the virtues and vices of administrative power at a time when both right and left fear a growing executive branch. I'm Tony Mills, editor of Real Clear Policy, and your host for this podcast. Each week, we explore a different aspect of the administrative state and its political ramifications. I'm speaking today with Elaine Kamar senior fellow and founding director of the Center for Effective Public Management at the Brookings Institution, and a lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. An expert on electoral politics and government reform, Elaine was one of the founders of the New Democrat Movement that helped elect Bill Clinton. She also served in the White House from 1993 to 1997, where she created and managed the Clinton administration's National Performance Review an interagency task force aimed at reforming the way government works. Elaine, thank you for coming on.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Tony.
0: The concept of bureaucracy has become a popular object of derision on, on the right and left, I would say, uh, in, in discussions about the administrative state and the federal government more generally. Your writing and scholarship scholarship has really helped clarify that concept, I think, uh, in determining what its uses and limitations are. Uh, could you explain your view of bureaucracy and how it fits into the modern administrative state?
1: Sure. Um, you, you know, bureaucracy is the means by which a government executes policy, pure and simple. Now, in a mature democracy, which is which we have and and exist in some countries in the world. What happens is the bureaucracy exists as a result of the rule of law. And parliaments or congresses make laws over the years, and then the bureaucracy makes sure that what's on the books gets executed. Um, Sometimes the laws are very big, and therefore the bureaucracies are very big. It takes over a 100,000 people working full-time to make sure that uh, people get their social security checks um, on time every month okay and so you know you you may we may think poorly of bureaucrats but the fact of the matter is that if you suddenly fired everybody, there would be a, a awful lot of things that Americans value that wouldn't happen and so it's an essential part of any modern democratic state
0: so in thinking about the so the positive uses of bureaucracy. Um, and I want to get into some of the uh, the ideas you have about reform a little bit later. Um, I also want to turn to what the limitations of bureaucracy might be. So your research has sort of emphasized both, that bureaucracy is, is necessary and important in certain respects, um, and that implication being that, that some criticisms perhaps go too far. On the other hand, you've, you've drawn out what limitations there can be with Bureaucratic management. Uh, can you talk about that and what the alternatives to bureaucracy might be?
1: Yeah, I mean the well. Let, let let's put it historically. Bureaucracy was invented around the turn of of the twentieth century, right? So around late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. It was an enormous step forward from what used to happen, which was a kind of um, who, who you knew. Got you benefits from the state. So having an impersonal one size fits all administrative state was actually an improvement over, um, being the prince or being the king and just giving benefits to the people in your court. Okay. That was, that was a big step forward for mankind. Um, as we neared then the end of the 20th century, the, Standardization that made bureaucracy so important and so useful became irritating to many people because what was happening was that technology was allowing us to cater more to individual needs. And so People got really frustrated with the bureaucratic state. The bureaucracy began to take on a a bad name in a way that it never had in, say, mid-century, mid-20th century. And we also developed the tools to be able to be more customer-friendly. You know, uh, by the end of the 20th century, you were able to do a lot of services on the telephone or uh, over the internet, um, although that was just beginning by the end of the 20th century. By the end of the 20th century, you still had to go to an office to conduct government services for the most part, and stand in lines, etc. So the government was lagging behind the private sector in flexibility and in the ability to, you know, deliver services to individuals. So that created a lot of unhappiness and government has been working since then to try and catch up and close that gap, but they've still got a bad name. Now, the alternatives to bureaucracy are, one is to create markets to, you know, to accomplish the same ends and in some areas that's been very successful. Uh, we don't have a bureaucracy of you know, old beer bottles in the United States, but old (laughs) beer bottles get you, in most states, your old beer bottles get you five cents. So guess what? Citizens tend to recycle their beer bottles because we've created a market for recycling. So we don't have a ton of bureaucrats, you know, recycling things. We have a market. Um, Uh Markets are very efficient, but they're also very hard to create. So Uh, We are looking in this country and in other countries at alternatives to bureaucracy, and we've we've made some progress, and I expect we're going to make make a lot more. Uh,
0: Discussions about the administrative state have this tendency to fly at a fairly high level of abstraction. I I know that I'm guilty of this myself. One thing that I admire about your your research is sort of bringing ideas to bear on concrete reforms, and um, you've also had a lot of real-world experience with this. Could you talk about your experiences uh, with the National Performance Review under the Clinton administration in trying to effectuate some of these uh, reforms that you're talking about?
1: Yeah. I mean, first of all, that was at the end of the last century, and a, a lot has changed since then. But some things remain the same. Um, one is that the federal government is a very large and very complex organization that does many different things many of which are actually highly valued by the American uh, citizen. So if -hmm. you ask Americans do they like bureaucracy, of course they hate it. If you ask Americans do you like the people who are responsible for sending Grandma's Social Security check out every month, I suspect they like them. Uh, do you like Americans who stand at the border and and uh, protect us and and you know uh, try to keep criminals and drug dealers out of the country? Mm, my guess is they like those bureaucrats. Um, do you like the bureaucrats who make sure that our army officers and and um, enlisted men and our sailors um, get paid every month? Mm, yeah, I suspect that they like them. So what happens is there's a there's an abstract and then there's the concrete. And if people like the government mission, then frankly they have to like the people who fulfill the mission. But sometimes they don't like the government mission. If you don't think the government should be involved in healthcare, if you think, you know, if you're, um, you know, a very conservative like many of the Republicans in the House, and you think that Obamacare is a bad idea then, frankly, you don't like the people who work at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services who implement Obamacare. So it's really something that you have to look at in terms of, well, okay, what are those bureaucrats doing?
0: What what kinds of uh, changes uh, took place, in, in, in your view, uh, in the 90s to move – bureaucracy from the kind of historical picture you were you were painting earlier to a more uh, modern system obviously there are, there are problems today and some of our, our challenges are are different but what do you see as the sort of landmark shifts in the way these bureaucracies or agencies functioned over the past few decades
1: yeah well the big landmark shift is that I think the Clinton administration brought the Federal bureaucracy into the information age. Um, We began to put services online. So these days, you can apply for when you turn 65, you can apply for Medicare online. When you get to be retirement age, you can apply for Social Security online. There's just a vast number of government. Transactions, and of course the big one that most people encounter is paying, is filing your tax return, that can be done online. So it was really a, the, the, by the, at the end of the 20th century, the private sector had moved aggressively online. The government was a little slow. And a lot of what we did in the National Performance Review is basically move the government into the information age. Now, there, it's been slower than the private sector, but often the slowness is for good reasons. Frankly, I don't care as an an American citizen. I really don't care very much if somebody sees what I buy on Amazon.com. You know, I mean, sort of big deal. Um, I care a lot if somebody sees my tax return. So there are higher levels of security involved with government transactions online, and that, of course, makes things more complicated, slower, less um, quick and easy than, obviously, the uh, private sector. But I think that the government has continued through this, Bush administration and through the Obama administration to, you know, move as much as can be moved um, online away from traditional bureaucracy.
0: In thinking about the relationship between the private sector and and bureaucracy a little bit more, one thing that uh, critics will often point out is that the sort of emphasis on making the, the federal government or specifically the administrative state smaller more efficient uh, in the Reagan, Clinton, and and the Bush years um, has had the either intended or unintended effect of increasing the government's reliance on private sector contractors. Uh, Do you think that that's a problem? And and if if so, or if not, what is the proper role for contractors, in your view?
1: Um, I think it has become a problem. And the reason I think it's become a problem is that it has been done in a way that doesn't make crucial distinctions between uh, functions that are central to government and functions which are not. So, for instance, if the Agriculture Department wants to install a new telephone system, uh, there's no reason that, you know, that shouldn't be contracted out to AT&T or Verizon or people who specialize in telephone, right? I mean, that's not what the Agriculture Department does. So, you know, there's a lot of contracting out. This just simply makes sense. It is less clear, however, that the Defense Department should contract out interrogation of terrorist suspects, which they have done, because that seems to be fairly central to the government's mission, which is, you know, finding out, what the bad guys are thinking and what they've done and what they might know. Um So there's a discussion that needs to be had in the United States, which nobody's had yet, over what is a core governmental function and what is not. And I think that until that happens, we're going to get a, a really kind of uh, kind of messy situation, which is what we have now, where Mm -hmm. there are some some things that are are contracted out that, frankly, should be core governmental functions and not contracted out. And then there are a lot of things that, you know, you can contract out. You can, you know, if you take a military base, right, um, there's no reasons that you shouldn't contract with McDonald's to have a McDonald's on a military base, right? There's no reason that you should have enlisted soldiers trained to fight who are actually making hamburgers, right? You don't need to do that. So mm. in other words, a lot of contracting makes sense, and then there's some contracting that is problematic. I think
0: underlying this this uh, set of issues, a lot of people will point to the problems with the civil service as uh, difficulties hiring and, and firing uh, civil servants when necessary. Um, as almost incentivizing this reliance on private sector contractors. Do, do you think that uh, underlying civil service reform is needed in order to address that problem?
1: Uh, absolutely. But the most, and, and I do think there's a lot of, there's two kinds of, three kinds of big reforms. It has to be easier to to fire people in the civil service. Absolutely. But secondly, it has to become easier to hire people in the civil service. Hiring in the federal government is just an enormously time-consuming thing, and the government takes months and months, if not years, to make a job offer. Um, the government was taking well over a year to hire border patrol agents on the southwest border, which is why. The President President Trump's, you know, ANAPA executive order to hire 15,000 agents is just going nowhere because it's really, really hard to hire in the federal government. So again, sometimes the reason it's hard to hire is legitimate, and sometimes it's just a bureaucratic nightmare that needs not, you know, need, doesn't need to happen. So that's that's one of the things. I mean, the hiring problem is probably frankly worse than the firing problem, but everybody focuses on um, how hard it is to fire civil servants. Um, But the third problem is even worse than the first two. And the third problem is that the federal government has stopped being a government of clerks. In the mid 20th century, Most of what people who worked for the federal government did was they kept track of your earnings record at Social Security. They took, they kept track of your veterans benefits at the Defense Department. In other words, we didn't have computers and so we needed lots and lots of people and lots and lots of paper to take, keep track of this. That is all now automated, right? So what's happened is the federal workforce is now a very sophisticated workforce. So the federal government employs molecular biologists to work to look at our drugs. It employs nuclear physicists in the Defense Department. In other words, in every agency you look at, there's a high level of skill needed. The federal workforce is the most educated workforce in the United States and in the world. It is, has more four-year college degrees and advanced degrees. And it's just because we've basically brought most of the sort of routine stuff into the information age and that's now computerized. But what do you, when you computerize something, what do you need? You need software engineers and you need people like this to keep it all going, right? So the problem with that is that we still have a sort of clerk mindset. And Hmm. there are, we also have limitations on salaries in the federal government. And this is the big one. When people say, well, Microsoft could do that, or why don't we have Apple do that? Well, that's a great idea, but you got to be able to pay people what Microsoft and Apple pays them. And we can't do that because civil service pay is capped. And it is also limited by the pay of the president of the United States, who makes like four hundred thousand dollars a year. Well, you know, go to Silicon Valley, and you're going to see a lot of top um, computer engineers making a lot more than four hundred thousand dollars a year. So we've, we've got a we've got a very archaic pay schedule, and we can't the government can't compete in the private sector now. The problem with this is gargantuan, because if you say to an average citizen, you know, what's average income in the United States is what, about $50,000 a year, 54000 for a family of four. So you say to somebody making $50,000, 50, $70,000, that really the government needs to hire at the Internal Revenue Service um, software engineers who make $250,000 a year. They say, well, that's ridiculous. Okay, right. well, why should I pay that? Why should my tax dollars pay so much money? Well, the reason is, is that it, that if you don't pay that, you don't get the talent you need because the private sector is paying that. So once, once the government moved into the high tech era, we moved from a place where we were hiring clerks to a place where we, we were hiring almost exclusively high skilled people. And When you don't let your pay structure compete with the private sector, you're gonna always be behind the eight ball. And the result is, what's the result? The result is that we contract out in order to get the talent we need. And that's what's been happening in the federal government in the 21st century.
0: You're listening to the future of the administrative state. I'm Tony Mills, editor of Real Clear Policy. I'm speaking with Elaine Kmark, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution and a lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Elaine argues that bureaucracy is an essential part of any modern democratic state, but that our own bureaucracy is in need of reform. That means not only making government functions more efficient but also deciding what we think the federal government should and should not be doing in the first place. We've been talking a lot about the executive branch, the, the uh, agencies in, in, the federal, uh, in, in the executive branch, for instance. Uh, I'd like to turn to the role of Congress uh, now. And w- What do you see as the proper role of Congress in overseeing or reforming uh, the administrative state administrative agencies? <laughs>
1: Well, Congress has basically stopped doing this, okay? Um, the, a long time ago, political scientists divided congressional oversight into two forms. Um, police patrol, which is where you just sort of normally you're you're patrolling. you're looking at the executive branch, you're trying to anticipate what's going right and um and emergency, okay. Um, Oversight—that's oh my god, something screwed up, and boy, we better have a hearing and get to the bottom of this. Well, they've almost abandoned police patrol oversight. They hardly ever do just normal talk to the bureaucrats, find out how they're doing, what they need, um, if the law needs to be changed, etc. And in fact, almost all the oversight you see now is an emergency. Something has gone. Terribly wrong. Veterans are dying because they don't, they've been on a list for healthcare for too long. That sort of thing. And Congress doesn't have any capacity. Congress has been, it's been, you know, doing it to itself. It keeps cutting the very agencies that support it and would allow it to have the expertise to do oversight. They they've cut the Congressional Research Service. They've cut the Government um, Accountability Office. Um, they've, in other words, they have their own bureaucracies, which are really very small compared to the federal bureaucracy, and not they they need help. They need capacity if they're going to oversee this. The only there's one member of Congress, Senator Mike Lee from Utah, who's been on this bandwagon. He understands that if you're a conservative and you would like to cut government, you need a fair amount of expertise to figure out how you cut without throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And Mm -hmm. by by robbing themselves of expertise, frankly, they're not able to cut anything.
0: I found this, this aspect of your argument especially fascinating and powerful because one of one of the, the common defenses of uh, the importance of the administrative state of the executive side uh, is the, the role of expertise and that the judiciary and Congress simply don't have the expertise necessary uh, to carry out uh, oversight and uh, much less reform efforts. But you seem to be suggesting that they do, and in fact, they used to have more. Is that right?
1: I mean, they need to, they, they need to, they need to get with a program here. I mean, they are lagging seriously, the judiciary and Congress is lagging seriously behind the executive branch when it comes to expertise. As government functions get more and more complex, right, you need a Congress that can keep pace with them. So the government, you know, the federal government does things like it approves new cancer drugs. Now, your, your general member of Congress, okay, tends not to have a background in cancer research or molecular biology. And so, <laughs> They need, right? I'm sure once in a while maybe we've elected a molecular biologist, but I can't think of one. Okay, <laughs> so if they want if they want to have oversight of the of the FDA, of the Food and Drug Administration, they need some of their own experts. Um, it this it goes right across the board. Um, uh, If they want to have oversight over what kind of weapons the Pentagon is building, they need some people who know stuff about aeronautics and um, laser physics and you know all sorts of complicated things. So what's happening again? It goes back to the argument about the civil service. The functions of the federal government in the 21st century are either highly automated and computerized, and therefore what you need is you need lots of really top-notch computer engineers and experts, Um, or they are highly intellectual and you need, you know, doctors, molecular biologists, physicists, people like that. That's who works in the modern federal government, not clerks and not sort of faceless bureaucrats.
0: How did we get here, do you think? Why, I mean, there's this narrative of the federal government growing larger, more complex, dealing with more complex problems. New different people have different views about whether that's a good or bad thing. But but why has Congress uh, uh, grown weaker in this respect? That seems almost to be from, you know, stepping back, you might think that that is counterintuitive given that larger narrative.
1: Um, I think Congress has grown weaker for two reasons. First of all, they spend way too much time um raising money and campaign, and not enough time as the old- as older congresses did in hearings in meetings where they actually learn things and develop expertise. We haven't had a Sam Nunn for instance in Congress in a long time. Sam Nunn was a senator from Georgia he's still alive um, who who was known to have exquisite um uh, an exquisite mastery of defense policy and U.S. Defense Department. Uh, we just don't have, the members, the senators and the congressmen tend not to develop that kind of expertise anymore. And they have also robbed themselves of the assistance they need through their own um you know information offices to get that second thing that's happened is they have shift there's been a shift um we've shown I've shown this in a paper I wrote not too long ago of moving their their congressional staff and using more of it in their home offices to deal with constituents and you know stuff in their district and less of it as committee staff or or you know policy related staff. So you see this when you see the incredible difficulty that the Republicans have, even though they've been talking about it for seven years, they still have incredible difficulty um, getting their minds around what they want to do on healthcare. Okay, and, sure. and part of this was a part of this was a big expertise gap, um, in health care. So you, you've, you've really got a lot of, I mean, Congress really has to up its game if it intends to resume its, its proper role as providing oversight of the executive branch. Uh, the second piece of this is, is harder, though. Um, nobody has ever, no conservatives have ever actually sat down and said, here are the things the government should not be involved in. Now, I can think of some and I'm a Democrat, right? I mean I frankly wonder why we have a Department of Housing and Urban Development anymore. Okay. Um mm-hmm. I you know, I I'd I'd say, hey, let's look at that whole thing and ask ourselves why are we doing this at the federal level when it seems to be so uh seems to be so much about state and local government. Um, so, you know, I can think of things to abolish, but you, you've you got to do that because, you know, let's face it, the Clinton administration took the low-hanging fruit when it came to government efficiency because we were operating at the dawn of the Internet, and we were led by Al Gore, who was quite a visionary when it came to the Internet. So... We, we were, we took the low hanging fruit. The government is in the information age. And yes, you can always make improvements. You can make an efficiency improvement, but you're talking about, you know, maybe if you're lucky, a 5% efficiency improvement. If you want to really cut the federal government, you literally have to decide it should stop doing X, Y, and Z. And that is not a discussion that conservatives have realistically had. Uh They don't frankly have the political guts to do it. They they talk about it in the abstract, but they don't have the guts to do it in the particular. And until that happens, you know what? We're going to have the same size government that we've had. Now, by the way, the government is not growing. Um, the government as a percentage of the population has been absolutely steady for decades now. The government is not getting bigger and bigger. It is, however, getting more complex and doing more uh, sophisticated things. Tracking down an Ebola virus, for instance. Okay, and so it has a need for more talent, but not more people. Okay, it's been, frankly, as a per- as a percentage population, it's been absolutely steady. And uh, the political scientist John Diulio has done some wonderful work um, showing this.
0: Thinking especially about the. Um the difference between functional questions of improving government performance and uh, what, in principle, government functions are. I think that uh, it's interesting that there seems to be a, a growing sense, at least among scholars and writers who work on this area, that that does need to happen, although the political will to do it, I think, is, uh, is something else. But what, what do you see, uh, practically, that Congress could do uh, to begin to reassert some of its authority— um are there mechanisms that should be revitalized or are there new uh, mechanisms that need to be put in place?
1: Well, I mean there's some some simple things like there was an office of technology in the Congress and they killed they killed it. They ought to get it back because frankly they a lot of what goes on what is needed in terms of oversight is very tech is technology related in the federal government. I think the other thing they have to do is they have to work more. They have to stay in Washington more, and they have to do more hearings. Okay, they have to, and they have to do hearings where they actually learn things, as opposed to just showboat and speak to the cameras. Um, Congress has gotten; they've dumbed themselves down. There's just no doubt about it. If you are old enough to remember Congresses in the 70s and the 80s, there's a big difference. And they've got to, frankly, get smarter and spend more time on understanding the federal government as opposed to attacking it when it screws up. If they understand it better, they can maybe prevent some screw-ups. Um, and that's important. Look, people knew the VA was in trouble. Okay, the the Bush administration passed on information about this to the Obama administration during the transition. Everybody ignored what was happening at the VA, even though there was plenty of information about it, until it got to the point where it was making headlines and and people were dying and having serious health problems because of it. So um, they've just got to get on the ball when it comes to their oversight responsibilities
0: do you see or are you hopeful at all that that might happen given the current political dynamic i'm thinking in particular um about how uh, the relationship between the republican congress and the republican administration is uh, a little different than what we've seen in the past and of course one could imagine democrats getting on board with the idea with congressional republicans and reasserting some kind of authority vis-a-vis the executive. Do you think that there's any hope that that might actually happen?
1: Yeah, I do. And and the reason I do is that um, we have a unique situation with this administration, which is we have a president who is remarkably unversed in every aspect of policy, and therefore can't lead. Uh, the reason there's no among the reasons there's no health care bill is, frankly, there's nobody in that administration who knows enough about it to actually negotiate um, a health care bill. So you've got, you've got sort of a vacuum at the White House level in terms of expertise, and the vacuum in expertise means there's a vacuum in power. And I think Congress is going to – I think Congress – there's a high probability that Congress will fill that, will step up to the plate. Um, But they need some help, okay? They've uh, basically dumbed themselves down. They have about, if I'm remembering from my paper correctly, they have about 17,000 people working for them to help them oversee an executive branch that, if you include the military, is about 4 million. All right. So they're out. They're they're seriously outgunned. Is the is the bottom line. And they need to do things that make themselves smarter and more competent. Um, If this administration lasts for, you know, for eight years, then I think what you'll see at the end of it is a Congress returning to a more um, active role in oversight. But they've they've kind of, uh, you know, they've kind of dropped the ball in recent years.
0: I think that one of the frustrations on the right, at least, has been uh, coming uh, sort of reckoning with this uh, reality of, on the one hand, uh, less opportunity for executive leadership in many policy areas, but also a weakening of Congress. So that I think there was an expectation uh, among at least some conservative intellectuals that the Trump administration would allow... Republican Congress to get things done, but what we've seen is a lot of dysfunction, which I think uh, is just the expression of the kinds of uh, trends you've been you've been describing.
1: Absolutely, and and also look, you need a most of the time to get things done, you need a president that can give some coherent direction. Um, because the because the Congress is five hundred and thirty five individual fiefdoms, right? You you do need some kind of White House at least saying yes, no, you know, no maybe to options and plans. Um this White House is you know, contradicts itself, um doesn't really seem to know what it's talking about is doesn't seem to be really engaged in um, legislation and so it it's so the congressional job is getting just harder and harder as opposed to being easier now i think that you'll i think that if they can get health care behind them either by dropping it altogether, or you know coming up with some minor fix um I think they'll be it'll be a little bit easier to do on tax policy because I think Republicans as a party have more expertise and more passion for tax policy than they do for healthcare policy. Um and I think that you'll see between Gary Cohen and, and some others in the White House some real understanding of tax policy and maybe they will be able to lead in that area. But um, frankly, you've got a president and a White House that's you know, um, not terribly versed in most aspects of policy, and it shows.
0: To bring our conversation full circle and turning a little bit um, to the Democratic side, uh, what do you think the Democrats can or should do in this political context with respect to these uh, broader questions that we've been talking about. Is something like a pivot that we saw uh, under Clinton in the early 90s needed? It doesn't seem perhaps especially likely, but uh, what do you think has to happen over there uh, as far as government reform goes?
1: Well, I think the Democrats at this point can't do much on government reform because they're in the minority in both houses. Um, I do think that if they get to, if they return to power, say, in 2018 or, you know, take the House, for instance, um, I think that they need to have a very sensible political reform agenda, and they need to talk about it, and they need to, you know, connect with Americans who find the government frustrating and do some of the things that we were doing in the late 90s. Um, making government more accessible, uh, cleaning up the red tape where you can clean it up and where you can't clean it up, explaining that, you know, there's a reason that the federal government doesn't work like Amazon, and it's because there are more important issues at stake than there are when you're buying, you know, a DVD off Amazon or, you know, a, a present. Um, so. You know that that needs to that really needs to happen. If Democrats expect to govern again, they have to be sensitive to the need for government reform and for government operating um, smoothly and without you know with minimum of frustration to the citizen. If they just go in and they just start defending government, you know blindly, they will they will be missing the boat. Um, and I think one of the reasons Clinton was so successful in his first term was that people knew he was working on fixing the government.
0: I think that's a a good place for us to to bring our conversation to a close. I, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on and share your insights and experiences.
1: Well, thank you very much, tony, and i'm I'm happy to happy to be with you.
0: Thank you for listening. I'm Tony Mills, editor of Real Clear Policy, and your host for this podcast. Join me next week for a conversation with the Claremont Institute's John Marini, a professor of political science at the University of Nevada, Reno, who has written extensively on the administrative state, the separation of powers, and the Constitution more generally.